This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, Patrick McEnroe here, Holding Court, and I'm very, very happy to welcome my first ever guest to my podcast, and that's because he, in many ways, was an inspiration for me to get this going. Of course, it was a number of years ago when he was nice enough to meet with me in New York City before I made the big move out to the suburbs. That's Mr. Brian Koppelman. Many of you, of course, know him as the man who uh, co-created Billions, that hit show on Showtime, season five coming up shortly, and of course, countless movies, including Ocean's 13, Rounders. But the reason I need this man as my first guest is because of his inspiration that he gave to me and because of his love for many years of the sport of tennis. Brian, welcome. Hey, Patrick. I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you. You know, uh, long before we became pals, obviously, uh, I grew up with your brother-in-law and your wife, and, um, and you were a tennis le- You were an athletic legend on Long Island where we, you know, grew up. I mean... Uh, you were, uh, we were, you know, obviously John was so famous, but you were always, you know, if you were a guy like me, we're around the same age and I played varsity sports, tennis and basketball, but you were always held out as like, you know, the best athlete of our sort of crew, crew of people. So, um, I know how long you've loved sport and loved tennis and, uh, although I do feel like you've been ducking me a little bit now that we're both old, <laughs> right. me. As far as getting out on the court together, I think you'd have to spot me five games and uh, love 40. Love 40 per game. All right, that, could, that would definitely be a challenge. And, of course, my wife, Melissa Erico, is a singer and an actress and is actually on your show, Billions, that first season. But she reminisces often about you, Brian, your sister, Jenny, who Melissa and her were very good friends from, like, sixth grade on. And she tells me lots of stories about how amazing your whole family was, including your mom. I know she passed away. Your dad who was in the, in the yeah. record business. But she tells great stories about the great parties that used to take place at the Koppelman household. Well, yeah, when we would have a cast party for the shows because uh, Melissa and I, my, Jan, like you're exactly right, my sister Jenny Hutt, who's got this great radio show on Sirius, and, and Melissa would be in plays together, and yes, the, the uh, cast parties were often at our house. But you want to talk about tennis? Let's talk about I, I want to talk about tennis because obviously you and I could go on and on about all your interests, and obviously I've followed you for many years. You actually, the first time I think we actually really met was when you interviewed me for the Jimmy Connors documentary you did uh, for third, the, the great ESPN series, 30 for 30. So we sat down at the USGA National Tennis Center to talk about Jimmy. But what I'm interested in from you, Brian, is because I know you've gotten yourself interested in meditation over the years. You've done your own podcast, as I said earlier. Uh, you're great on Twitter with your, you know, now during this global pandemic with your pictures of the coffee cups and the royales but what yeah. what is it about tennis over the years that's um interested you not just physically but also mentally and spiritually well i do love i love tennis it's been a huge part of my life since i was a kid you know i grew up i grew up playing i started playing really i can't even remember uh, basketball was my first love, tennis was my second love, and both of them competed for my attention throughout my childhood. That's probably why I never got great at either one. Plus, it's really hard to become 
uh, great at something. You have to have just this in, insane work ethic and also uh, real natural um, gift. Tennis, the mental aspect of the game of tennis has always uh, attracted me deeply. You know, because one day you can go out there and uh, you can hit every line. You feel like you know exactly where the ball is going. You want to uh, hit a slice serve into the deuce court and pull someone on, uh, uh, you know, outside the line. You want to kick it uh, to their back. You can just, you just know you can do it. And then there are other days, not for someone like you, but for most of us, for mortals, there are days where you just uh, can't even keep the backhand in the court. And that's what drove me to play. And it's also what drove me crazy about it. It is so hard to uh, master yourself enough to repeat under pressure these things that you've thought that you've grooved so that it, it, it never stops being a battle. It never stops being a battle for me even to this day. Like if, if, if I go out there and, you know, there are days that I can try to rip a two-hander topspin uh, backhand, and then truly there are days that I don't have the guts to do it, and I just start chipping them back. And that thing now at 53, that it still um, challenges me in that way. And then plus, man, you know, if you grew up when we did, and your brother and Vetus were from near where we were from, you know, where I was from. Vetus Garolitis, uh, right. Yeah, and I mean, Vetus was from 10 minutes from where I'm from, and you guys were 20 minutes from where I grew up. And uh, the the way in which tennis captured our imagination, you know, um, was enormous. I mean, I remember I would go to the Open. I worked at the Open as a kid. I mean, I was really all in. And I, I, I sold, I sold, I did, I sold T-shirts there a couple of summers because my brother used to do the McEnroe Over America tour. And we used to sell these T-shirts at the different events, at the venues. And once in a while, I would go, you know, by that time, I was about 17, 18. So I was, a, you know, obviously a highly ranked junior player. So once in a while, they would let me be the warm-up match uh, for his match. And he used to play Vitas a lot. He used to play Guillermo Vilas from Argentina yes, quite a Vila. bit. So yep. my first quote-unquote real job, if you can call it that, was selling T-shirts at the U.S. Open. Meet the, that's the job I had, though. I worked at the Alessi booth, <laughs> right. and I sold clothes there for three years. So you would get this little pass, and I would get to sneak into the – I mean, I'm sure you remember back then, like, the way the grandstand was set up. You could kind of, like, sneak under – I used to sneak under the, the gate. Under the fence, yeah. Yep. Under that fence, and then I would sit on those little private – the friends um, – like, there were those friends bleachers on the grandstand. Do you remember mm -hmm. kind of uh, – and I would sit there all the time, and I'd get to know the guards. And so like, I lived at the open in that way. And to have that so close to where we grew up and to be a part of it. And we'd bring our rackets. And then back then, security was so lax. Like, I hit on all those courts. And so being a, a, a kid getting to do that, you're just bonded to the game forever. And um, I definitely actually met you a few times then. And then um, uh, we met over the years. But yes, when we really got to know each other was when I was, uh, Dave and I were making the documentary about, about Jimmy right. and you were so gracious to have us out, out there and to give us so much of your time on, on what was such, uh, uh, a painful and intense moment for you. Well, yeah, no kidding. People remind me that of all the time, by the way, what I used to do when I used to be a kid at the open is, uh, I was have always been a big fan of ice cream and Italian ices. I used to have the best Italian ices at the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Open. So I used to take the 
uh, the paper cup, and I would make friends like you did with the guard. I would make friends with the Italian ice guy. And the, the way they made their money selling the Italian ices was how many cups they sold. Okay, so I would keep my cup. Oh, they would count the cup. Yeah, they count the cup. Right. So I'd keep the cup, and I'd go back, you know, after a couple hours and get them to refill my cup and, you know, slide them 50 cents or something or an extra buck. And literally by the end of the day, I mean, my, my paper cup was like, it was like dissolving in my hands. That's how much I love those Italian ices at the U.S. Open. And by, we, really yeah. learned, we really learned to hustle there, <laughs> We really did. And by the way, speaking of uh, you, you, were, you were going on about the challenges of tennis and uh, the difficulty of you know not being able to hit that same shot that you could the day before, and you sort of said said in your comments that for me that wouldn't be the case. Let me tell you, that's exactly the case. And even reaching a level as I did as a professional, I used to say to myself when I used to get my butt kicked by Andre Agassi, you know, at center court at Wimbledon in the French Open. I used to say to myself, man, I'm, I'm just as smart as this guy. I mean, I work just as hard, but there was absolutely no chance, okay, that if he was yeah. on his game that I could beat him. So even when you get to that level, obviously I wasn't at his level or the level of my brother, but I was still at the level that I was a pretty good professional player. And so You were a top 30 player, man. I was, top, I was top 30. 28 was my highest. It seems to yeah. go up over the years, but I think that's what that, – that's to me what – is so interesting about talking to people like you that have done so much in your life, that continue to do so much, that have so many interests, but yet tennis is something that you still go well, out there yeah. and, and it's part of your regular life now, even in your 50s. It really is. I mean, there were years I didn't, so it did drive me a little bit crazy when I was a kid because there would be days, like we didn't really focus on that ranking system now that, you know, whether you're a four zero or a five zero player, but there would be days where I could beat someone who was a 5-0. But then I would play like a 3-5 the next day, and it drove me so crazy. Whereas basketball, if I just practiced enough, I was an 80% foul shooter. It didn't matter sort of what, what the situation was. If you sat there on the foul line enough, you knew that you were an 80% foul shooter. You could kind of work at that and get to the place where you made 80% of your foul shots. What, what is In it? tennis, for, for me... I never, you know, I would, I would also, I think partially because obviously what I made my life in was my imagination. And I don't know that, um, it's a very rare player that that really, really serves like that, that idea of imagination really serves fed and it really served your brother. But it, for me, I would watch John play and then all I'd want to work on were, uh, like drop volleys and, uh, <laughs> right. I would, cause I had decent hands. Right. Right. But then I would watch. Uh, even like a guy like Elliot Telcher play, and I would be like, "Oh, why does he hit his backhand like that? I want to try that weird thing of putting the backhand on my shoulder." Right. And like that is not useful if you want to become great. You got to groove the same thing over and over again. And um, and still, like I say, still to this day, um, I love tennis, and I never know what's going to happen to me when I walk out there. With golf, it's even worse because tennis played my whole life so there is like a floor I'll, I'll at least be able to you know uh i can keep the ball in play but it is um it's an endless fascination you know and, and also patrick how do you deal with this like so you're i was watching you hit the other day i've obviously studied your game to make the documentary and i just watched you play incredibly closely your whole career i, I mean i know exactly how do you deal with when when the game changes when suddenly what's considered the forehand 
uh, has gone through these changes as people have studied it and everyone's doing this windshield wipe thing and they're able to generate more spin and speed. Do, do you ever think about it? Do you go out there and fuck around with that shit? Do you make your grip slightly more wet? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you asked me before we started this podcast, you said, because I posted a video recently of uh, during this pandemic of me hitting against the ping pong table. Okay. And, yeah, and, I love and, and a lot of uh, my ex-tennis cronies uh, chimed in, you know, the Darren Cahills of the world and the Brad Gilbert and the yeah. guys that I work with at ESPN, many of them chimed in and said, your forehand never looked so good. Cause you know, my forehand oh, was great. my weaker shot when I was on the tour. I had, a, I was known for having a much better backhand. So a few people said, well, how about I try the backhand? So the backhand's easier for me. So the answer to the question is absolutely. And the first, it first started for me when I was working for the USTA. That's when you came and, and spoke to me. And I would yeah. go down to Florida, you know, every month to, to see our team there. And Jose Higueras, who was a great player and then oh, yeah, ended up being a great well. coach. I used to kind of watch him um, in the way he instructed the game and taught our kids that were coming up. And uh, I always try to learn, you know. So now that I've found myself in the last four or five years working with my brother at our tennis academy where you come and play at Randall's Island with all our kids, I've, I've paid even more attention to that because I'm actually trying to figure out the best way to teach. So the answer to your question is absolutely. I used to say to Coach Agaris, I said, I wish, you had, I wish you'd been around when I was a kid. My forehand could have been so much better. Although the great Tony Palafox, right. who was our coach out in Long Island for me and my of brother, course. you know, I realized how much... He taught me without me really even knowing it at the time. And I think that's that's what keeps me interested in the game. Obviously, it's given me my whole career and my livelihood and et cetera. But uh, the, the passion. Yeah, there that, was a whole yeah. romance to it, too, back then, Patrick. I love that you're asking, as you're asking the question. I'm thinking about it because, like you mentioned, Vilas. And I think different from now, back then, all these guys had their own racket. So I remember exactly what Vilas's racket looked like. I remember exactly Borg Donne. I even remember, you know, Brian Gottfried's Snowert racket. And like today, these guys all play a certain line of rackets, but there's not sort of this thing where the image, the racket, who their heart is sort of made as clear somehow as it was to us freaks back then. Yeah, well, maybe it's because, you know, the big business of, uh, of, the, of the racket manufacturers, you know, like everything else in the world and... I think that's that's changed in the last 10, 15 years. But you're right. A lot of those players, I mean, I used to get my rackets made literally myself. An old coach friend of mine used to literally get the specs of my racket, and I, we would send them off to some warehouse somewhere, actually probably in China, now that you think about, you know, how the shit has hit the fan late, literally and figuratively here in our country. But I used to get them made at some warehouse, and they were similar to the Wilson racket, but a, but a little bit different. And uh that, like the pro staff or the original Jack Kramer? Which? It's a little bit more like the like the same shape as the pro staff, the graphite, the, you know, one of the right. first graphite rackets. But the first um, graphite racket I ever used was the Dunlop Max 200G. You remember that sure. racket? Of course. I remember all of them. Yes, very well. I remember all of them. So I'll, well. tell you, I'll tell you Because what. I went to tennis camp and I, I uh, was the only kid with the Prince, the green, the original green Prince racket. Oh yeah, Jay Berger. Well, Jay Berger, I think it was a Prince Pro. Pam Shriver, I think, went with the with the uh, green. Yeah, and they all the, made classic. they all made fun of me at first, but by the end of the summer, everybody was borrowing it to hit. I remember I went, and um, in fact, in fact, John came the first summer I was there. John came to offense defense, which is where I was. Oh sure, I remember that. Yeah, a day teaching us, like hitting with us and stuff. And I was thirteen. 
And um, that was right before he made the huge run. And it was in, in, an incredible thing. And um, But I had that green Prince racket maybe the next summer, and everybody by the end of the summer was like <laughs> wanting to borrow it and use it for their big matches. That's so. That's so funny. It was the first big. It was the first big face, right? Oh, absolutely. That was the first. Like the and then there was the wide body. Prince made a wide body racket for a short period of time, which kind of came and went quickly. When you when you get into, I mean, obviously you're you're. I follow you on Twitter, so I see what you do with your meditation and your daily writing and all the sort of the daily things that you've I think learned over the years, and you're so yes. awesome in putting it out there for for people to participate with you and maybe learn themselves. I know my wife talks about it all the time, you know, how she's trying to do her meditation. That's helped her a lot. And, uh, you know, same business that you're in. How do you find that, that, that is, is tennis in any way related to that side of you? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I'd say sport is completely right. Um, as you know, I mean, nothing gets you out of your head better than, the ability to purely focus on something uh, that takes all of you. So um, I've been lucky enough actually out here during the time that um, I left the city and a friend of mine uh, who doesn't live far has a tennis court and uh, he uh, leaves two cans for me out by the court I, in the beginning, before he was fully quarantined, he would leave cans. I would grab my son, and we would go hit because we're quarantined together. Right. And so I've been able to go hit during this, and that has been enormous for my mental health. Uh, I've done it like probably four, four to five days a week. Wow. And well, yeah, because it's great. I, I was able to not see anybody. I'm already quarantined with my son. My son plays at. We play at the same level. He beats me uh, more than I'd like. But we can go out there and play, and um, it's been an incredible stress reliever, 100% to get to do that. And especially to do it with your son at a, at a moment like this. I mean, this is just a crazy time. The thing that I uh, love to do, as you saw just on the ping pong table, is uh, it, unfortunately they've even closed some of the parks down with the walls because uh, hitting against the wall has always been a big part of, in fact, over even over the years as I've had kids and you know, gone into other lines of work, obviously all related to tennis. I used to remember we used to live in the city when our kids were relatively young down. Uh, and I used to go to the East Village, Lower East Side on House. When it was on Houston or Delancey, there was a park that had a wall. Oh, of course. Yeah. I used to go down there all the time by myself for 45 minutes, hit against wall. And all the, all the guys would be playing handball down there. So they'd see me come and they'd, and I'd, you know, just find a little spot in the wall to, do my thing and start hitting balls. And they'd be looking at me like, Hey man, you want you want to get in on this handball game? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I got, I got my racket, my ball. Do you get the yeah. big competitive, do you get the big competitive ping pong game going with, I know one of your kids is very good at tennis. Do you, does, can she challenge you at ping pong yet? You know, she's got a little ways to go to, to get, um, to get to me there in ping pong. But I will say that that was a big part of us growing up in Douglaston in Queens. We used to have a ping pong table in our garage similar to what I've been uh, holed up in our uh, basement for almost two weeks now as I tested positive for the virus and, you know, was self-quarantined even before then. But uh, we used to have some unbelievable games. And, in fact, it was the only game that I could beat my brother John in. So once in a while, I could beat him in ping pong. And suffice to say, he didn't take to it too kindly. That we, you know, we had a lot of masking tape in our garage because we'd have to, we'd have to re-put the handles back on the paddles. 
with the masking I love that. tape. Well, because you throw them, I understand. Yeah. Well, Patrick, you have to understand something. So when I was 13 and John came up to offense defense, I, I was um, not the best tennis I played. Everyone there was better than me at tennis. I was like, I remember I was like in the top group, but the worst guy in the top group. But I was the best ping pong player, and I was young. I was 13. And John came up, and I said, uh, I think I could, and, and he was very cool to all of us. There was a ping pong table, and I said, uh, I think I could beat you at ping pong. And I was 13, and he was, you know, 19 or 18 or something. Right. And he said, I don't think you can. And I was like, I'll beat you. I'll, I'll play it for whatever you want or something. I don't know. He was like, all right, kid, what do you got? It's five bucks. And he played me righty, and he destroyed me. <laughs> you know who's great in ping pong is my buddy uh, Judah Friedlander. I'm going to have him on. He's a you know the comedian. Judah and I played yeah. ping pong together a lot. He back, he not, whoops not, me in ping pong. I played tennis with his brother, who's a big tennis player, similar to your level. So he's been to our academy a couple of times, but he brought me a couple of new paddles and showed me how to play at the academy ping pong. He's good, really good. Judah's better than Judah's better than I. So so there was a period of time where I was playing ping pong very ridiculously seriously a few years ago i played tournaments and uh and judah took me and we would and we played a lot and he would beat me but i could get a game off of him once in a while back then <laughs> in ping pong not anymore i could there's no way i could he's kept at it yeah, but, oh you and i would have a, we would have a good ping pong match I think I think you and I would be fairly similar level because Judah showed me a future. Because I, I play ping pong like I'm playing tennis, which of course is exactly the wrong way to play. You you know, he showed me how to do the spins yeah. and all that. So I think I could probably catch him pretty quickly, but uh, haven't been practicing too much. But Brian, when this listen, is all over. Yeah, this is all over. We got to get out. Do you still play hoops at all? I play a little bit of hoops. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Knicks fan like you, and you get you know Knicks, Rangers, Jets. I see you're. We, we've been long suffering for the same teams for many years, so let's hope we can get yeah. some sports back soon. Number one, and then get some competitive teams in New York. Number two, I agree, Patrick. I think it's so great that you're doing this podcast, man. I love the fact that you came to me a number of years ago and asked about it, talked about it, and the fact that you're doing it, man. Your follow through, the way you approach everything, I just admire the hell out of it. Well, dude. listen, I really do. Like it, you are, you're such a top pro at everything that you try, and I feel how much focus and intention you put in everything and um that's the reason you've been so successful for so long it's really impressive well you've been an inspiration you'll continue to be and as i said this is my first ever podcast recording and uh i told you after we met that you'd be my first guy <laughs> I, I got a pretty good list of people lined up to do it so uh i'm i'm really really happy that you took the time to talk to me stay safe best to your family and i appreciate you coming on Stay safe. When this is over, we got to go do that. Uh, uh, a heads up, Pong and Tennis. You got it, my friend. Anytime. All right, I'll see you, man. That's Brian Koppelman, ladies and gentlemen. Awesome having him on Holden Court with Patrick McEnany. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.